I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Dorothy Hodson, is the recently retired Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences and Professor Emerita of Anthropology at Brandeis University. Previously, she served as President of the African Studies Association, Chair and Graduate Director of the Department of Anthropology, and Director of the Institute for Research on Women, all at Rutgers University. She was also president of the Association for Feminist Anthropology and editor-in-chief of the Oxford Research Encyclopedia on African Women's History. As a historical anthropologist, she worked in Tanzania, East Africa for over 30 years on such topics as gender, ethnicity, and cultural politics, colonialism, nationalism, and the missionary encounter, transnational organizing, and the indigenous rights movement. She is the author of several books and the editor of others about life and social structures in Africa, especially the Maasai in Tanzania. Her most recent book, Gender, Justice, and the Problem of Culture, From Customary Law to Human Rights in Tanzania, was published in 2017 and is the subject of today's interview. So Dorothy, welcome to Delving In. Thank you for having me, Stuart. So as we can see from your bio, your main research focus has been on Africa, especially Tanzania, in terms of multiple interlocking dimensions. So what drew you to this part of the world and how did your interest develop? I was an English major as an undergraduate and thought for a while I wanted to be a lawyer, but was smart enough to go work for law firms for a couple of years and realized that wasn't the case. And in 1985, the UN Decade Conference for Women was happening in Nairobi, Kenya. And I decided that my job got a three-month ticket and went out to participate in the external activities of that. There's the internal part where all the government delegates, but on the outside, there's um, something called the forum where activists and, and so forth organize. And so I went out to visit that and participate in that and then went to visit a friend in Tanzania, ended up being offered two jobs and my three months became three years. The nature, my primary job was with a newly formed development organization that the Catholic Church was starting in the aftermath of famines that had happened in East Africa in 83-84. And after a year, I became head of that organization. And so most of my work was in the area of Tanzania that uh, locals called Maasai land. It is the area primarily inhabited by Maasai peoples. It's about the size of Texas. So driving around, meeting with people, asking questions, learning, doing good works. The work was exciting. It was exhausting, but I had a lot of questions about what we were doing and why, about what was development, about some of the tensions we were witnessing, especially between men and women and young and old. And those questions sent me to anthropology. So I went to graduate school at Michigan and kept returning to Tanzania. It felt at the time, this is the late 80s, that for several reasons, the investment that I had made in language, both Swahili, the national language, and then Ma, the Maasai language, but also more importantly, perhaps a political commitment as a white woman working in East Africa to, to keep returning, to have this kind of longitudinal commitment to build on these relationships. There's a history, as you may know, to anthropology of folks coming and going. And so that became my commitment. So I've spent about over eight years of my life living and working in Tanzania. Now, actually, it's almost a 40-year period since 1985 and just savored every minute of it. And that's led to these projects, including this last book. 
It sounds like you, you were involved both on the kind of individual level, building relationships, and, and also on the kind of structural level. You seem to take an interest in the kind of policies and, and governmental structures and cultural structures more than just the individual interactions. Yes, my interest, as I said, certainly what the questions that drove my dissertation, which became my first book and subsequent projects were larger questions about, as I said, what is this thing called development? Is it good for people or not? Why is it creating all of this havoc? Those questions actually led me also to focus as much on history as anthropology as I was trying to understand what came before, how and why, the circumstances I was witnessing at the time, what was behind them. My naive assumption had been the problem, as it were, with Maasai was there was not enough development, whereas my historical research suggested that maybe at times there was too much focus and too much effort to try to intervene and make them into change them and change their livelihoods in ways that did not align with their own desires and imaginings of their future. So you're correct. I am interested in structures and bigger questions, but I like to look at them through the lens of, and I feel like that's what we anthropologists can provide, the stories and lives and words of individuals, of groupings of individuals, um, but always with an attention to how difference, differences of gender, of age, of wealth, how those may or may not shape certain kinds of perspectives and ways of being in the world. Speaking of development, I don't know if you will agree with this. It's not something that you wrote, but reading your book and also watching some videos of Maasai, it's struck me as being something akin to the way people lived in biblical times in ancient Israel with, with herd, herding, basically herding of goats and sheep, and in this case, cattle. Cattle seems to be the most prominent animal, but it's, it seems like a kind of, a kind of time machine that there was, it's like this older way of living and, uh, and also polygamy, which was also seems biblical too. And I imagine there's all kinds of pressures to change all of that. Yeah, that's part of certainly what I've documented in my work. Herding, it's very interesting now with all of our focus on climate change and the environment. There's a number of folks who feel like there should be a return to certain kinds of herding. The reality is that in the particular environment that Maasai and other pastoralists live in East Africa, the kind of fragile rangelands that have microecologies, there's rain some places, not rain others, that herding of cattle, goats, and sheep is actually the most productive way to both produce livelihoods and care for the land. And in other work I and others have done, we've documented efforts, let's say for the British to, when they were there, to create a wheat farm. And they took a chunk of land away from Maasai, tried to grow wheat, and basically desertification is what emerged, right? They completely ruined the land. They maybe got one crop and it was gone. So I recognize that sometimes it, and this is part of their challenge, right? That people see that, they see sometimes the outfits that people wear, and there's a presumption that these are people from a different time or out of time or representatives of our past, but they live very much in the present and are very conscious of what they want to do and how they want to do it. And the reality is that herding is part of what they've done, but many of them have farmed, many of them are educated. They've been very interested for a long time in, in ways to 
diversify their livelihoods, but sometimes the the choices that they want to make are supported and often are not supported by the government or development folks or other people who think they have better ideas for them. So their way of life is perhaps uh, more sustainable, is what you're saying? I, I would say absolutely, <laughs> certainly than what you and I live. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it seems that what you what your work is doing is a kind of deconstructing paternalistic views of Africa, of African culture. But yes, much of that. And we could use the word paternalist. Some might argue at times there's a, a racism that's part of that. And sometimes as I argue and I think show in some of my work, it's also just it's not just white people's kind of paternalistic or racist, it's also the elites. So that's been part of the the change over time that I've shown is that the British were there for a while and they had lots of views that I've documented, but now we have African elites who Maasai would call Swahili in Tanzania. And they share some of those same views that these are people out of time and of the past. And there's a very, they have a contradictory relationship to that. On the one hand, there's a sense they're not modern, they're the past, they're we're ashamed of them. We need to force them to change, to modernize very rapidly. Yet on the other hand, certainly in the past 10 or 15 years, there's been a celebration of that so that when folks who are not Maasai, African folks who are not Maasai get married, for example, they now want to have some of the beadwork or some of the cloth or some of the kind of cultural elements of Maasai life to represent their, their moorings and celebration of whatever being African might be. And another really fascinating part of your book is that you talk about not only the pressures that the British impose to change, but also some of the more indirect ones that the British rule, in order to make the rule efficient, emphasize the role of the elders, of the male elders. And they actually tip the balance of power in the local culture that, yes, the male elders did have a lot of power, but they gave them, concentrated it such that other forms of power got minimized. No, absolutely. They, you know, the British, and I try to imagine all sides of the situation. The British were a complicated crew and we don't want to generalize. They were they were tasked with a almost impossible mission, which was how to control. And again, initially Tanganyika was a protectorate. It wasn't formally a colony. So there was some oversight from the League of Nations and eventually the United Nations. But they were tasked to govern this large dispersed population and they had a few guys in shorts and a couple of vehicles and so forth. And so their efforts to create so-called native rule and native administration, it wasn't just in Tanzania, it was through much of the British Empire to work with local folks and try to build them up. And But their presumption, of course, part of the driving of this was that political power, of course, had to reside in men. It was a bit of a, and of course, if they were men, they had to have political power. It was a kind of circular reasoning. And as I show in my book and in some earlier work I've done, they just couldn't see women's forms of power. So it wasn't just reifying and reinforcing the power of men over women, but it was also of elders over juniors. So junior men also felt the brunt of that. So many of the interventions of the British were to help the elder men better control the unruly younger men, Ilmoran, who often gets glossed as warriors, the young men before they're married, because the British felt, I think rightly so, that these young men, part of their way of being in the world is to 
challenge authority, to challenge, to to so-called trespass, to steal cattle, to show their bravery. There were lots of kind of rites of passage and the British not so sympathetic to that and wanting to maintain order. The other challenge was for the British, it was also an effort to get people to settle. I think what was most disturbing was the semi-nomadic part of pastoralism, the fact that Maasai lived dispersed. They would have usually a primary homestead for many years, but in order to to keep the livestock going during the dry season, seasonality is very important to that lifestyle and to that environment. They would have to move around and that made it hard to see, to control folks. And the warriors, the Ilmoran, were central to that because they were often the ones who who as part of their responsibilities were taking cattle and other livestock to dry season grazing grounds, some of the permanent lands and permanent waterways that would help them make it through to the next wet season. You talk about the British having a concept of natural law, which I think needs to be put in scare quotes because there's nothing natural about it. Yes, I keep using the scare quotes, but no one can see, can see that on the radio. Yeah, so the British had this assumption that their sense of law and justice was universal always. And these views were not necessarily shared, often were not shared by the Maasai. And I think probably a distinction here that's maybe helpful is the rule-bound versus a context-bound culture. I don't know if that's a distinction that's still used, but the British are really a famously rule-bound culture. I think probably German culture is too. But other cultures are more context-bound where the it's not hard and fast rules. It, it's much more individualized to the situation. And it's pretty clear that Maasai culture is much more of a context-bound, not entirely, but individual circumstances are are better appreciated somehow. I think that's part, certainly in the book that was the kind of foundation of what we're talking about today, that's part of what I'm trying to show. We have become a society in which law is seen as the arena through which to address injustice and seek justice. And our ideas about law and justice are very much in the kind of, I'll call it Euro-American world, understood as premised on individual rights and law, laws of states, laws of international law is somehow seen inherently as right and just. And so part of the story of my book is trying to show how and why we came to that and what it means to try to impose and cultivate that in a society and in a to some extent, a country where that is that has not been the norm, where the norm was, and I wouldn't say more individual, I would say it's, there's actually a collective sense of justice and, and an effort to take into account context and the specifics and so forth, rather than an effort to say, this is law 24A, and you have violated that. I do think we're seeing now in the United States ways in which perhaps law and the laws are not necessarily inherently for the good and the ways in which power helps to determine which laws get put into place or which laws get taken away. And that's part of the struggle that I try to document. So this might be a good place to hear an example of women's power. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right, but there's a practice called Okishuroto. Very good. Okishuroto. (laughs) Yeah, that's really a remarkable sounding intervention, I guess you can call it. <laughs> Could you give us an example of when and how that's, that's used? 
So Okishiroto has long historical roots, and it's it can be called different things, but it's a form of collective action and protest by women when they feel that there has been such a significant injustice or wrong that they as a collectivity need to rise up and address it. So it's not a minor infraction, a common one that at least we have documented in the historical record and in interviews is when men decide to sleep with either their real or what we call their classificatory daughter, which is actually what would be more common. So that would be the daughter of a man who's considered in their same age set. So that those are women who should be out of bounds. And that is seen as a rebuke, not just to the social order, but part of what I talk about is that that's also a rebuke to the moral order. And women are seen as the kind of guardians, if you will, of that. And so when that is has happened, and I talk about some instances in my book, it's something I've never witnessed. I've talked to people who have witnessed it, but the women commonly will gather together. They will go find the offending man. They often will either beat him or beat one of his prize animals. They sometimes will tear down the house. But there's a lot of violence in there, and it's a fearful thing. I talk about some of my friends who have witnessed, my Maasai friends who have witnessed it, and especially my male friends, the men run to hide. They recognize this is, it is a powerful and actually at times quite violent thing. And what I talk about is how Okishiroto has, despite efforts to create laws and a legal system and judges and courts and so forth, Okishiroto has persisted as a form of women's power but it's also been transformed now to address new forms of violation. And that includes, as I talk about, women's sense that state officials and state officers are also upsetting the social and moral order. Now, these violations are less specific than this sleeping with a classificatory daughter. It is, though, these forms of dispossession of land, of dispossession of rights, there was instances, especially, and it's actually been happening again more recently in kind of certain areas of Tanzania where the state has gone in and burnt homes, it's taken livestock, it's really actively dispossessing Maasai from their livelihood. And now we've seen Okishiroto, as I talk about a 2011 collective protest by women that I liken to Okishiroto. Uh, you could see from a Western point of view, Okishiroto is uh, the women being the judge, jury, and executioner. And there's no, what's the process and how, how can it be guaranteed to be fair? But from their point of view, I guess it's only when it's very clear. I think it's very clear. And the fact that you have, that it's not an individual woman, but the fact that it is a collective response suggests that there's a sense among, a shared sense of injustice among folks. So it's different than you or I deciding to be the judge and jury. It is a group. And frankly, especially the more recent occurrences, the men are very supportive of that. It's the Okishiroto and these collective protests that in some ways are getting or historically have gotten more attention and more purchase than the efforts of some of the men, again, dear friends of mine, who are the lawyers and activists and are trying to take the government to court and so forth. And that is just never getting very far. 
let's talk a, a bit more about the differences between Maasai culture and Western so-called culture. Uh, you talk about there being a kind of emphasis on ingrained respect rather than fear of consequences. And you also talk about, I don't know if it's you or someone, you're quoting someone talking about the acephalous. I had never heard that word before, but I guess it literally means headless organization. Uh, acephalous organization of political authority among the Maasai. That it's really interesting. That's very different. It's not quite as hierarchical as we would be. Acephalous is a good anthropology word from political anthropology. Like all fields, we have our jargon, our kind of short ways of indicating things. Acephalous is not unique to Maasai, but it is a way of managing, of societies managing themselves, but without a chief or one individual who's at the helm. And historically, what that's meant for Maasai are these councils of elders. And those elders, again, primarily elder men, all elder men generally, but women have the right to appear, but meet frequently to discuss cases, to discuss concerns. And their goal is always to try to reach consensus. So those meetings can be long. I have witnessed those meetings and they can take days sometimes because they truly are trying to reach consensus. They want to make sure everyone has had time to speak. And again, women can speak before then. Often though, they will ask um, if they have an adult son or a husband or brother to perhaps present on their forms. But it just means that in a, it, you can imagine it makes sense if you can imagine the geography of Maasai, they're truly dispersed across a large landscape. There are now villages and there's a city, Arusha, that's nearby and folks will be in Dar es Salaam, which is the kind of de facto capital of Tanzania. But it's how do you work together and across that? And so the not having a head, the having kind of senior male leaders who come together is a common approach to that. Now, women also have some historically had political authority. They would usually be in charge of managing infractions that felt, let's say, that were more in the domestic realm where a child stole milk from another homestead or there was a woman who was rude to another woman and the women themselves would meet together and try to manage those. And it was very much a form of what we call, we anthropologists and legal scholars, restorative justice. So the notion was not who necessarily always, who is right and wrong and what is a punishment, but how can we figure out a way forward where we can try to make amends and if something was stolen, that is replaced, but also more importantly, repair the social fabric so that we can keep working together. So it sounds like if we can incorporate some of their culture into, into our, our own, we might be better off. <laughs> Perhaps. There's, there's a very famous legal anthropologist, Laura Nader. She was out at UC Berkeley, and she's the one who wrote a lot about these kind of restorative forms of restorative justice and these alternatives. And it was in a lot of societies, actually in Mexico is where she did her work. So in your book, you quote a, a, district, a British district officer named Mitchell. Uh, he said, uh, I was only eight months among the Maasai, but I repeat, if I ever met a people who will most completely manage their own affairs, it is the Maasai. But then later, he was frustrated by the complexities of the Maasai social organization and also his inability to design and implement an appropriate and effective Maasai native authority. So he ranted that the Maasai were 
quote, more like a flock of sheep than an organized community of human beings. So that's, <laughs> there you get the full spectrum of reactions to, to the culture, that there's something really impressive at first, but then you, it gets so complex that you can't really intervene. And if you're a colonialist, then that's a big disadvantage. No, I think especially for Mitchell, it's one thing if you're trying to, if you want to just let people be, it's another thing if you want to try to force certain kinds of changes. And that's where, yes, you will confront, I think, not just murkiness, but obstinance and so forth. One of the concepts that I learned and actually the Maasai activists I worked with at the time learned from the international indigenous rights movement was that of self-determination. That is the kind of right, if you will, of, of people to be able to determine what their futures are. You almost use the term less developed, and that's fine. That's what many people, when they see Maasai, think about. Maasai have, and again, I've documented this in other work, are very attentive to and, and curious about certain kinds of changes, but they're also careful about what they want to adopt or not. They were early adopters of bicycles. Bicycles were fabulous and helped them cover. Again, you just have to imagine the, I don't know if you've ever been to Tanzania, but it is, especially in the rural areas, it is really remote. I've never walked so much in my life. And so having a bicycle to be able to quickly move made sense. Umbrella is another one, not so much for the rain, but for the sun. And so very attentive and quick to figure out what is useful and not, but other things, not so much. Yeah, I, I suppose there are no more anti-technology, maybe less anti-technology than the Amish. I understand the Amish have cell phones, but they use them only for emergencies. Yeah. Cell phones have transformed Maasai life. Again, in a relatively poor country like Tanzania, where you were never going to be able to lay cable or lay stuff, cell phones helped. It was a kind of jumping technology. Every Maasai person I know, uh, once they reach adulthood, has a cell phone and they use it for banking. They use it now for the weather forecast, to send information, to transfer money. It has actually been, that's a great example of something where they were very quick adopters because they saw all that it could provide. Now, they're not just chatting with people. They're really using it to access information that is useful for them. Market prices of cattle, right? Where is the best market? What are they selling for? This is where I should take them or sheep or goats. And so it's quite common in East Africa to see Vodacom is one of the big cell phone providers. And they love to have a billboard that's got a Maasai man and his red blanket with his cell phone. But that's actually the norm. And I imagine maybe solar panels for electricity, given that there's a lack of infrastructure. Solar panels, electricity, absolutely. Other kinds of technologies for pumping water, for grinding maize, other kinds of things. So let's shift now to talk about uh, patriarchy. It seems that the culture is predominantly patriarchal, but not consistently. When you talk about the theology being centered around a, a goddess, or God as a female god, Engai, is that my pronouncing that right? Engai. Engai, okay. Yeah, so I think patriarchy is a complicated word. <laughs> It's not, not one thing. It's many things, right? It's not one thing. And what are you picking and choosing? I think it's Maasai society perhaps has gotten in some ways more patriarchal in other ways less. It's an analytical term that I don't actually find all that useful because it people you say it and people think they know what you're saying and it's just more complicated. But 
again, part of what has happened, it's back to our earlier conversation, is that through various interventions of the British and even since then of in post-independence Tanzania, there has been a reinforcement of male power and the power of elders. That said, there's also been the opening up of other kinds of avenues for women. And so one of the in one of the chapters of my book, I talk about how the kind of back to the dis, the colonial officials somehow became really beleaguered because suddenly they were getting cases of what we call family law about child custody cases and so-called adultery and women running away and all of this. And they just couldn't figure out what to do because again, they wanted rules, right? This was their effort to meet with the council and say, tell me what happens in this case. And there were no clear rules. There was some shared understandings, but the cases could vary depending on the person and the circumstances and so forth. I think that it, change is always contradictory. And so I would not call Maasai patriarchal. I certainly would now as, as more and more women are educated, as women in many cases have become kind of primary earners. Women are the the kind of center of households. And yes, this kind of, and the gender of Ngai is one of a lot of scholarly discussion, but at the EN pronoun or is a gendered female one. And Masse themselves see Ngai and they speak about, when they speak about Ngai and the, the kind of metaphors and so forth they use, Ngai is a primarily female deity. And that's also where women see that in themselves. They, there's effort, ceremonies to, to worship Ngai. But Ngai is also the word for sky and nature. The kind of, I have a whole book called The Church of Women, but Maasai theology or religion, if you want to call it that, is one that's very much reflective of their engagement and their environments and their understanding of that. There's a certain tree, a fig tree, that for them, I don't know, fig trees have, I know I'm using my hands here, fig trees have often these roots, these branches that come down and roots that come up that kind of tie the sky and the branches. And Maasai see that as it's a holy sacred tree, because it is something that's linking the sky and the earth. And so I've had the honor of witnessing kind of ceremonies and prayers and other events under these sacred trees or within these groves of the sacred trees. So would the Maasai religion be considered monotheist? They don't, historically don't have primarily. I really am clear to just talk vaguely about a sacred presence and a deity. So it's not like the God of the Christians, but they don't have lots of other spirits and gods and so forth as some other religious traditions do. Mingai is the primary deity, if you will. So almost like uh, like Mother Earth, except uh, also sky. So not just down, but up and everywhere. So that does sound kind of monotheist. Now, of course, there are other practices that just sound so patriarchal. I'm wondering if there's another way to look at it, but things like bride wealth, which I guess is a form of dowry. And there's some kind of implication that if women aren't purchased for marriage, at least there's an exchange between two families, that there's wealth provided to the, to the bride's family in order to make the marriage happen. Yeah, so bride wealth is different than dowry in that dowry is usually is a kind of another tradition, but historically for bride wealth was a series of exchanges between the family usually going from the family of the 
male suitor to the family of the woman. Dowry often usually goes the other way. So it's the women's family paying the men's family. So that's what you would see in India and other places. Bride wealth is different. And it's historically, it's not about purchasing a woman. It's about cementing social bonds. And it's often seen as something to establish and strengthen the relationship between the two families. And this would be especially for the first wife. This is usually more elaborate for the first wife of a man. Usually he will have more of a say in selecting his second wife and or sometimes his his first wife will have a say in selecting the second wife to make sure that they can all work together. So I don't think of bride, bride wealth has a long history. I think as I again show in my book, it has morphed their various forms of marriage. It's become harder as with these, the kind of political and economic dispossession of Maasites become harder for men to accumulate and and for families to accumulate the kind of wealth needed. And it's to to do these, we'll call them proper marriages. Um, Also, I think with education, with Christianity, with other influences, increasingly young people don't necessarily wanna marry the person their parents want them to marry. Um, and so these arranged marriages, and this is now reflected in the national law. So they are eloping or running away and sometimes trying to then retroactively make it a, a proper marriage. And I share some of those cases in my book, some that worked out and many that didn't. And what we are seeing is also in Tanzania, Kenya, I'm sure other places, we are seeing poor people, poor parents, daughters for whom really they are beginning to see the only way to make some money is to sell their daughter. But this form of selling a daughter that is really escalating the price of bride wealth, the series of gifts, it's really looked upon as quite shameful by most Maasai, but it's a kind of desperate effort to make some money. But it it is a more minor form of instituting a marriage. So it's what's not necessarily looked upon as a purchase, but it lends itself to that if the family is poor and if they go in that direction? There are certain cases that, you know, and again, I talk about it in the book that Maasai call and and the words they use translate to selling a girl. But historically, that was not how bride wealth was understood. Yeah. And another thing that you're uh, implying here, I think, is that there's this tension between urban and rural. And as in so many other places, the urban elite, if you want to use that word, or wealthier and more cosmopolitan and have more cultural exchange with people from elsewhere. And the culture is changing most rapidly in urban areas, whereas in the rural area, it's more, much, much slower change. I think with, again, radios and cell phones and other things, I wouldn't want to say that cultural exchange is more in the urban areas. And also Maasai, both men and women have a long history of travel. So even if they might live in what you and I would consider a remote area, they've usually been through and spent time in towns. Um, I think that the kind of authority structure and the ability of elders to still have some modicum of control is more able in rural areas. There's less options but that's partly why I think both men and women, some of them of the juniors are trying to leave those areas. And also just with the kind of undermining of herding as a lifestyle and even agriculture to some extent, there's a a search for other ways to make a living and to make a, a way in the world.
One of the things you talk about in your book is the concept of universal human rights. I gather that you're somewhat ambivalent about whether that exists or not. And one of the prime examples of where, where that comes up is the practice of female genital mutilation, formerly called female circumcision. It's a practice that's quite widespread. I think many millions of people in Africa, the Middle East, and Indonesia, not just the Maasai in Tanzania. And there is really powerful pushback, starting with feminist groups in, in Britain and, and now feminist groups internationally, but also within Tanzania. And, and it's been outlawed, but, but it's still practiced. Just wondering, what's the cultural implication here? And is there any way really of having sympathy for the practice, or maybe not for the practice, but for the cultural implications of the practice? And I think you talk about that, about how for families that expect this, they are really afraid that their girls won't be eligible for marriage unless that practice is done. Female genital cutting, as I call it, or FGC, historically, and I talk about this in some of my earlier books where it's a practice that I have witnessed, it was usually part of a multi-day set of ceremonies and practices that together were part of taking a, a, a girl and making her a woman, right? Basically a marriageable woman. And there was cutting. Again, historically for Maasai, it's been a very minor form. We know of other more serious infibulation where there's in parts of Sudan, a kind of cutting, not just of the clitoris, but of the labia major and then sewing up and these things. And again, I think it's important to note that for Maasai, it was a relatively modest cut, though it was a cut of the external part, the kind of hood of the clitoris. But it, it was all rolled up into a set of naming ceremonies and other celebrations of the young girls, similar to what happens with young men. There is a male circumcision for Maasai men that is or takes boys into young men. So let me just say, I'm not a proponent of FGC or FGM, but I am an anthropologist. And I think it is part of what I talk about in this book is looking at how and why female genital cutting, or first of all, became called mutilation, why it's become an obsession for, I'll call them Western feminists and their, and others and their kind of understanding of certain African women, including Maasai women, and what that has meant for the lives of, of Maasai men and women. I start actually back, the book starts in 1985 when I'm at the Nairobi conference and witnessing this increasingly angry interchange between these American women and these African, these Kenyan elite women around the topic, where which backs these Kenyan women to a corner where they have to defend a practice that I don't think they necessarily defend. And I think most of the educated Maasai women and many of the men I know don't necessarily support the practice. The question becomes, how do these things change? How does that, is it something that is best changed by criminalizing it. And part of what I argue is that's not really working. If anything, it's made the practice go underground. Parents are now have taken the cutting out of this intertwined set of ceremonies and just cutting girls younger and younger just to make sure it ha what happens because they're really afraid. They're not doing it. And again, for Maasai, the cutting has nothing to do about trying to minimize sexual pleasure, or male control, any of that. It truly is about a kind of transformation from to marriageable woman. 
And so I think understanding these kind of constellations, and again, for the Maasai activists who I talk about in my book, the, the female activists, it's a frustration that what they are most concerned about is losing their land, losing their livelihoods, the other kinds of cultural and social discrimination they face. And yet what's of most concern to many of the development organizations, to these feminist groups is eradicating FGM. And so what I talk about is how and why we came to this, the reframing, because initially female genital cutting was understood as a health issue that could have certain kinds of health effects. It gets reframed as a human rights issue, and then it gets renamed from cutting or circumcision to mutilation, which has necessarily evoked strong emotions. But what that's created is really more of a backlash. We have historically an incident in Kenya in the early 1900s when Again, missionaries, Western missionaries decided that they wanted to eradicate the practice and started preaching against it. And it was actually at a moment where the practice itself was starting to decline, but their very act of being, of preaching against it, of all of that created a resurgence in the practice. I think the other questions are bigger ones about social change and who has a say. I don't support the practice. But I also don't believe that I am the person to be on the front lines to change it. I think it does need to be a more, and it is a more gradual kind of understanding of Maasai men and women themselves. And what we are seeing, and again, I document this in, in some of my other work, is increasingly we still have, for some families, this kind of constellation of ceremonies. And the cut has become more of a symbolic cut just on the inner thigh. So it's just a little thing. There's no cutting of the katoris or the labia minor or major, anything else, and people go on. And are there ways to maintain the importance of this transition, this personhood transition, but that, that are owned and embraced by people themselves? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes a certain amount of sense. It's a fascinating, also disturbing topic, obviously. And it really speaks to what we mentioned earlier in terms of development work, how to go about doing development work, particularly if the so-called underdeveloped country doesn't want it, or they don't want what's being offered or the way it's been offered. And it's not just this sort of social practice, but also things like dig making a dam that the Western countries have put dams up all over the place. And that's the way for progress. And it's done in a place where it shouldn't be, and it, it destroys the ecosystem. So it really makes sense to join with and listen to the indigenous people and see what they want, because that's what will not only have the higher chance of success, but have the advantage of, of being integrated in a much more natural way into the culture. It's also, I think it's interesting now, again, back to the kind of current moment in the environmental movement and so forth. Now there's a lot of, oh, wait, let's go actually listen to and talk to indigenous peoples who in many cases have lived on this land successfully and sustainably for eons. So it's not just listening to, it's a learning from, and that's where we get to the notion of kind of power, right? That often development is less about actually helping people. There's assertions of power, there's resistance to it, and I think it becomes an important analytic to take into account in trying to understand these various kinds of interactions and follow the money who has the money and who in who and why and how are they asserting why is the u.s 
trying to build these dams. And we can see it play in our own country, clearly our own history with First Nations and Native Americans and so forth. There's here in New Mexico, there's a long history of dispossession of efforts to forcibly assimilate peoples, force boarding schools, other kinds of things that have happened. And there's echoes of that in Tanzania. And one of the uh, wonderful things about anthropology is that it helps, I think, the, the reader, if the reader's from a Western culture, to appreciate that our assumptions aren't really as universal as they seem. So in, in the case of the British, it wasn't just that they were secular colonial norms, but they were based on Christian ideals as well. You know, so things like monogamy, fidelity, female virginity, and et cetera, et cetera, that there were certain assumptions, unquestioned assumptions that, that seemed natural. And, and once again, natural law, what does that mean? These somehow are natural, universal. And so that's, those questions and others are part of what motivated me to be not just an anthropologist, not just living with and talking to and learning from people, but also to try to understand the history, Right those laws, those beliefs, natural law is as much a historical production, to use my terms, as the forms of justice and deliberation that Maasai peoples have used. Yes, I'm, so I'm wondering if we could hold it in our minds simultaneously, two contradictory views on this. On the one hand, you have a kind of cultural relativism, you have different systems of morality in different cultures. On the other hand, maybe there still is something called universal human rights, and but they're in tension with each other. For instance, with female genital cutting, to use your word, I've, I've seen it compared to uh, foot binding in China, where girls' feet were bound in order to keep them little, because that was what's considered attractive and marriageable. And of course, it was crippling. So, and eventually I think the, the view became pretty universal that this was not a good thing to do. Yeah, so again, I'm not, let's see, I'll, I'll use a double negative. I'm not not a supporter of universal human rights. I think part of what I and many of my colleagues have been trying to do as have activists is understand when and how that's applied. So why do we invoke that and focus that on these issues and agree foot binding female genital cutting there's um, sati in india there's other practices but we don't invoke it as strongly and fiercely with i don't know everyone's right to water what was most fascinating for me and things that i learned when i, I did a book working with and understanding the international indigenous rights movement when maasai activists were involved and one of the many things that the involvement of indigenous folks in the United Nations through the UN Forum for Permanent Forum for Indigenous Issues, and prior to that, but now I'm forgetting it, the, another kind of Council for Indigenous Peoples, was they really put forward what we call the kind of third and fourth level of rights, which are more collective rights. So part of the challenge with individual human rights is it takes it down to, again, what I and other anthropologists would probably argue is a very cultural understanding of what a person is, right? That we are self-contained individuals and that the rights are embodied in us. Indigenous activists, among others, were very prominent in talking about collective rights. So beyond just the political, the right to vote, the democratic, but economic rights, environmental rights, shared understandings and rights to land, to water, to livelihoods, and trying to put those on the agenda as well. So I think that's, I'm trying to, I'm not a proponent of foot binding, let me just say this again, or FGC or anything else, but I'm trying to 
use the tools and the place in which I have spent many years of my life to at least put forward, to use your term, the contradictions, right? And to have people try to understand why are we obsessed with this practice and why are we not as obsessed with clean water for, frankly, folks in Flint, Michigan, not just in rural Tanzania. There's other places and spaces we can talk about that. And why aren't we invoking human rights and using the power of that legal language and those tools to make those things happen? You're right. Collective rights are just not in the same uh, place on the radar. To give an American example, there are people on left of center who believe that healthcare ought to be considered a, a, a collective right not just an individual right, but a collective right. And there are other people that are saying, no, that's not. That's, there's no such thing as collective rights, it would be the other view. Right. And maybe this is where sometimes the language of rights might not be the right one. I'm not sure it's a collective right, but I am probably left of center and think that there should at least be a kind of a basic foundation of support for everyone. I think that would save a lot. The terms of rights what we've seen is over time in the United Nations in various forms is everything becomes a right. And it's a, a language that I think has eventually gotten watered down. And so there are other ways of thinking about it. That's why I prefer and frame a lot of my work in terms of justice. I think that justice can be a broader term through which we understand that rights is one way of understanding and a very powerful one that has a lot of purchase right now of understanding justice. But there can be other ways of understanding, approaching and trying to create justice in the world. So I, I think the trick would be to find a term that appeals across the board. A term like social justice seems to be a term that would be embraced by the left, but not by the right. No, I suspect that that's the case. But I think universal human rights took some time to gain purchase too. There's various strands of history behind that. And other people at March Sun and others have written fabulous books detailing that. That's not my Fortunately, that is not my task. I'm trying to see historically how it's played out in a given place in sports. No, and I think that social justice can also, I say this as a former dean at Brandeis, where we have Tikkun Olam is part of what we were founded on in our mission. Repair of the world. Repair of the world, but becomes talked about in terms of social justice. But social justice is a very, again, very broad term. It's what a friend of mine would call a kind of there's a large umbrella, a large tent under that that you can pack a lot of stuff. So I wonder about the concept of fairness. And as a psychologist, I know that fairness is maybe not as a concept, but there's an awareness of fairness, even in infants. In infants watching a video of people being treated fairly, they attend to it more carefully than unfairly. There's a sense that there shouldn't be a grossly unequal distribution of resources, for instance. No, I think fairness is one. I think the one, again, big in the United States was equality, but that was often premised on, again, a very individualist notion. And I think folks in the center and the left have counter now with equity, which also has a sense of not just individuals, but trying to make a more even um, foundation so that people can... Of course, in the West or Western countries, co competition and capitalism go together. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed that in Maasai culture, it's much more collectivist and maybe the competition is less cutthroat in a way. Oh, absolutely. Resources historically were owned collectively. In my first book, I document the efforts to and the kind of conversion to a sense of a more kind of capitalist system. But also Tanzania itself was a socialist country for 
20 some odd years under President Nerere, the first president. So that's also part of that, the kind of history. It's now very capitalist that has changed under, again, pressure from the World Bank and the IMF and others, again, starting in the late 80s. But no, they're not, it's not a sense of individual competition. There's not one way to understand it. Something I use when I teach is about land. I'm talking to you from my house. I now own a house that's on a piece of land. For Maasai, historically, the thought that an individual could put marks on land and say, this is mine, was just anathema. It was That was something not understood because land, well, there were rules. It's not like it was a free-for-all. But it was, there was group access and the fact that it was a kind of, they would see it as presumptive that you could write this out and say, this is Dorothy's land here. This is Stuart's land here. That made no sense. Now that has changed and people have sometimes individual rights to land, but even those tend to be more collective. It's the land of the village and people are given use rights to it and access rights to it, but not necessarily ownership rights. Yeah, so Manhattan Island was not really sold for $24, the, uh, <laughs> if the other side didn't think of land as being owned. Okay, we're almost out of time. I was wondering, I know that you're recently retired, but maybe not completely retired from doing research and writing. So what's coming up for you in your next project? I'm still, you mentioned the encyclopedia. That has been a long project, and that's in its end game, which is exciting. So I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing that out in the world next year. And as I continue to do what I call my Dean Detox, that is <laughs> you know, try to remember what it's like to sleep and eat and exercise. I have, uh, I have a, I've been working on kind of gender and time and temporality. That's a very interesting one that again, draws on some of my research. I have some projects that I started in the United States back when I was working with undergraduate researchers at Rutgers University that I might pull out. I'm not quite sure you're catching me when I'm still just trying to do my decot. I don't think I'll be actively researching so much. The scholarly part of me is always there. And I've got plenty to think about and write about and engage. I just need to get back into that mindset. Dorothy Hodson, a recently retired Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences and Professor Emerita of Anthropology at Brandeis University, author of Gender, Justice, and the Problem of Culture, From Customary Law to Human Rights in Tanzania. Thank you so much for coming out to Delving In. It's been really fascinating. Thank you for having me, Stuart. It's been a pleasure. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.